trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, we're going to kick things off on the right foot today by uh, welcoming my friend Caleb Franz back to the show. Caleb joins me from the Profiles in Liberty podcast. This is our history in action segment that we do every other week. Caleb, great to have you back on the program. Hey, Brian, it's uh, it's good to be here. You got a great topic for us today, too. And, and you know, we're not trying to be politically correct here, but, you know, we talk a lot about the founding fathers. We don't talk as much about the founding mothers. So today they're going to get some long overdue recognition. Set the stage for us about what we're going to discuss in this segment. That's right. Well, uh, I, I decided in uh, this season of, of my show of, of Profiles and Liberty, this season, uh, for, for those who don't know, have been called uh, the Equalizers. Um, and in the back half of this season, I decided I was going to select four, uh, four founding mothers who have largely been overlooked uh, or forgotten throughout our history, or maybe you, you might know uh, one, one or two of their names, but not much of anything else about them. And, and these are rather remarkable individuals who, who really put, uh, put a lot on the line, not necessarily because they, were, they had some sort of uh, agenda or political statement that they wanted to make, but just because they wanted to, to get back to their, their lives the way that, you know, the way that they, they wanted it to be. And the ha- they had these massive institutions, these massive governing institutions, inhibiting that ability for them to do so. And, and they rose to the occasion uh, in some pretty remarkable ways. Now, are these names that we would be likely to recognize if we were to hear them? Or are these, you know, back in the far dusty pages of, of the history books? Yeah, so I, I think that there would be a, a healthy serving of, of both are, are the individuals that I, I selected throughout, uh, throughout the, the back half of this season. Uh, some of those individuals you may have heard of, uh, Abigail Adams is probably the most prominent example of that. Um, another individual you may have heard of uh, is uh, a, a lady named Mercy Otis Warren, who is a, a rather, uh, rather cool individual who I, I particularly like a lot. Um, but then there are others who, who you may not have heard of. Uh, the first individual that I, I highlight in um, the back half of the season and in uh, season two is a woman named Mum Bet, and she was actually a slave in Massachusetts um, during, uh, during the American Revolution. Uh, this was at a time when all of the colonies uh, had slavery, not just the South. And she decided one day after hearing uh, her, her master was a patriot in Massachusetts and was, was kind of key in, in helping spread uh, the ideas of liberty uh, throughout the colony uh, along the likes of Samuel Adams and John Adams and, and uh, the other more familiar founding fathers that we know of. Uh, whereas uh, mom would just, uh, mom bet would just sit and listen uh, as she was serving and, and doing um, doing what she was told to do. And she would listen to the people sit around the table, talk about ideas of freedom and independence and liberty. And those ideas stuck with her. And those ideas, she had this, this wicked sense of, 
of wit and, and intuition and intellect about her despite having no formal education. Um, and she decided one day after uh, a, a, an unfortunate encounter with, um, with uh, Mrs. Ashley, uh, the, the master's wife, um, she decided to, to put an end to it and, and go and she went to free, or uh, excuse me, she went to go sue uh, her master, John Ashley. And the cool thing is, is that she actually won. This was after the uh, after uh, Massachusetts declared its independence, as well as the entire United States uh, had declared its independence. Um, and it was because of the fact that this colony turned into a state was now founded in these ideas of liberty and independence that she based her constitutional argument uh, on the idea that all people are, are made to be free and equal and thus slavery uh, cannot be allowed to be legal in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, and it was a compelling argument uh, that led to Massachusetts becoming the first state in United States history to outright ban uh, slavery altogether without any uh, preconditions, no gradual emancipation as Pennsylvania had, had, uh, had approved a few years earlier. Um, it was just overnight, everyone was free. Um, and that is, I think, a really powerful story where she deserves to be in the ranks of the uh, founding generation uh, of those who we, we consider to be uh, founding fathers and founding mothers. Uh, but she's largely, unless you're from Massachusetts, it's very unlikely that you've heard of her. Okay, but I'm glad I've heard of her at least from you. Now, now yes. <laughs> I, I have another another heroine to add to to my list of people who made it. And isn't it interesting? She wasn't highborn. She wasn't in a position of no. power, but she still had very measurable impact. I think there's a lesson yes. in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I think there is too. I, I think that uh, a lot of these individuals, um, we think of the founding fathers as as people who come from high society, typically uh, Virginian tidewater aristocracy. Uh, but a lot of the individuals who I particularly highlight in this season um, came nowhere close to that background. In, in the case of Mum Bet, she was literally a slave. You could not get further away from uh, equality of opportunity and, and, and having all of the resources at your disposal as, as the way that uh, your George Washington or Thomas Jefferson might have. Uh, and yet she was still able to change not just the course of Massachusetts history, but the course of American history, because this was the moment that uh, I would argue really kicked off the abolition movement in a in a meaningful way. Of course, there were abolitionists before, and there were abolition uh, abolitionists afterwards. But this was uh, the the path that she paved uh, was the the way that uh, a lot of abolitionists started to realize, you know, we can actually make this work. We can actually make this happen. And one day slavery might actually become uh, abolished outright because of these ideas, not, not in spite of them, but because of the, the founding documents that our nation was, was forged in. I think it bears mentioning, too, that at the time she did this, there was not clear consensus. In fact, I would guess a majority of people were probably very much against what she was saying. So so for her to stand up and assert what she did took legitimate courage because it was not something that was widely held by everybody at that time. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, it was it was a little bit easier in, in somewhere like Massachusetts, where uh, these ideas were a little bit more receptive. But, you know, it, she was she was still uh, a slave at the time. And uh, that's didn't hold a whole lot more water in Massachusetts than what it would have in in Virginia or South Carolina or North Carolina. Um, and the fact that she she got the courage to to go out and uh, and seek legal representation and actually win her case is is a rather powerful testament. Okay. Any other founding mothers that you'd like to mention in the time that we have left? Yeah, absolutely. This past week, we uh, we we highlighted Abigail Adams, as I had mentioned. Uh, she is a a fantastic woman and probably the founding mother that everyone thinks of. Uh, but a lot of people only think of her in terms of well, she was John Adams' wife, but she was so much more than that. Uh, she she really was. I make the case in in that episode the backbone of America during some of uh, some of its its more uh, crucial. And, and darker days to, to help uh, John Adams, as well as the country as a whole, uh, get through some of those dark times. Um, two that uh, we have coming up, Anne Hutchinson is going to be this week. Uh, she was a Puritan who, who came over in, in the wave of the mass exodus from, from England. Uh, and she, uh, she kind of, I make the case that she established the idea of the freedom of conscience and, and, and freedom of speech uh, in America, well before any of the founding fathers uh, were even born, uh, and then we have uh, our final season finale on uh, next Friday, or excuse me, next Thursday, uh, and that is going to be a Mercy Otis Warren. She was a playwright and a a powerful uh, a powerful advocate for liberty um, and the heart and soul of the American Revolution. So I'm I'm very excited to bring forward uh, all of those stories to you. I'm almost ashamed to admit, Mercy Otis Warren and Abigail Adams were really the only two names that I recognized uh, before you brought up the other two. So kudos for for opening uh, my eyes. Tell people where they can hear your podcast. Yeah, so you can uh, get uh, Profiles in Liberty anywhere where you can get podcasts from. Uh, We uh, do every Thursday uh, a new show uh, drops as a season is airing. Uh, and we have two more episodes this season, uh, and then we are going to be working on season three very shortly. So I'm, I'm very excited, so I hope you tune in. Okay, keep up the good work. I'll look forward to talking to you week after next. Absolutely. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And uh, might I add, thank you for joining us today. I am very happy to have you as part of the audience. Taking a wild guess here, but uh, is there a chance that you've been misunderstood, perhaps for even considering some of the points of view that uh, are espoused on this show? You may be thought of as a radical. And someone may ask you, someone close to you may say, who exactly radicalized you? Now, if you point the finger at me, okay, I'll, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to take credit on my own, but if you want to say, well, it was hot, that Hyde kid, he, he did this. But, but I think we know the truth of the matter is we're not radicals. 
and we probably don't even march in lockstep for that matter. Uh, the fact of the matter is, not so many years ago, just a few years, maybe a generation ago, we're, we would be normal people. But, you know, if you question the status quo, it's, uh, I don't know, it's a dangerous place to be today. Nonetheless, I'm, I'm very happy to have you with us. By the way, I need to mention the sponsors who make this program possible. These are good, normal people, too, so I hope you'll, you'll do business with them. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, hslammo.com, and governyourcrypto.com. So one of the great dangers of the daily onslaught of war propaganda is that it persuades a lot of otherwise principled individuals to set aside their principles, right? Because there's danger or there's emotion or a combination of danger and emotion. So sometimes it's good to just go back to the basics. Jacob Hornberger, for instance, reminds us that the founders gave some very clear warnings about avoiding entangling alliances. And those warnings remain valid to this day. He says, assuming that America can avoid a nuclear war with Russia, the American people would be well served to ponder and reflect on some of the good founding principles of our country. One of those good founding principles was no entangling alliances. Now, it would be difficult to find a better example of an entangling alliance than NATO, which is really nothing more than a Cold War dinosaur. Having been called into existence as part of the U.S. National Security Establishment's Cold War racket, it should have gone out of existence at the ostensible end of the Cold War. Instead, not only was it kept in existence, it actually became the root cause of the current crisis in Ukraine. That's because it continued moving eastward, absorbing former members of the Warsaw Pact, and ultimately threatening to absorb Ukraine, knowing full well that Russia had made it very clear it would never permit U.S. bases, military military bases, that is, missiles, troops, tanks, and other weaponry to be established on its border. Just as the Pentagon would never permit Russian military bases, missiles, troops, tanks, and weaponry to be established in Cuba or along the Mexico-U.S. border. So by now, every American should be aware of the dangers surrounding America's involvement in NATO. If Russia attacks any of the Eastern European countries that are furnishing weapons to Ukraine, that means that the United States and Russia are now automatically at war with one another. And that's because of the entangling alliance with NATO, which automatically commits the United States to go to war with any nation that attacks any other member of NATO. Once the United States and Russia are in a state of war, the chances of the war going nuclear expand exponentially. That's because it's in the interests of each nation to unleash its nuclear weapons first in hope of disabling the other's nuclear capability as much as possible. Now, Jacob Hornberger reminds us that, uh, as John Quincy Adams put it in his famous speech in search of monsters to destroy, Europe has always been besieged with wars. The United States, he said is in a unique position given that the Atlantic Ocean stands between the U.S. and Europe. Therefore, he counseled the United States should continue staying out of Europe's incessant conflicts and instead devote ourselves to establishing a free, prosperous, peaceful, and harmonious nation here at home. Now, just as an aside, John Quincy Adams didn't uh, say that we should keep to ourselves and isolate and never have any interaction with other nations. He actually talked about how liberty should be the banner under which we go out and freely engage with the nations of the world. But he made a very clear distinction between liberty and force. In other words, America wasn't supposed to go out in search of monsters to destroy and by force 
share the goodness of what we have with others. We can do that through other means. Does that does that make sense? You know, through there's there's very clear humanitarian avenues that are open, but once you swing the door open to military action, um, it it sets in motion forces and events that uh, are not so easily controlled. Jacob Hornberger points out, with NATO, we get the exact opposite of a free, prosperous, peaceful, and harmonious nation here at home. In the event of Russia or any other nation attacking Moldova, Poland, North Macedonia, or any other NATO member, the American people are now automatically at war. No national debate, no congressional declaration of war, no protests automatically at war, thanks to the Pentagon's decision to entangle America in the old Cold War dinosaur NATO and in the process invite some 30, yes, 30 nations to join. Now, I realize for some people, you know, that's, so what? We're right, they're wrong. But here's the point that Jacob Hornberger's making. He says it's time to get out. It's time to make this Cold War dinosaur extinct. Our national well-being and perhaps even our very existence turn on returning to sound founding principles, especially no entangling alliances. I've got a link to his article in the show notes. I strongly recommend the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org, as one of your uh, resources for wrong thinkers. If you want to... You want a good take, and I mean a very principled take that's not uh, steeped in, you know, red versus blue politics. It's hard to do better than the Future of Freedom Foundation, and particularly its president, Jacob Hornberger. Why is it so hard to see these things, though? And, and I'm, I'm just, I'm not trying to point fingers and say, why do people have to be so wrong when I'm so right? Because I may not be right. All I know is... It's, it's so easy to justify setting aside the principles when, when there is the threat, the enemy at the gates. That's tough. And, of course, it, it doesn't help when you have, you know, around-the-clock coverage. I mean, come on, this is, this is dominating the news cycle. And, 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 of course, we see the atrocity porn that's trotted out. Oh, well, look, the, this hospital was destroyed. And, you know, there's... I don't know how any, any way to say this without sounding kind of callous, so I, I feel like, okay, well, I'm going to stick my neck out here. There is conflict raging in many, many parts of this world. And, and what's sad is there's a good deal of that conflict, which is sponsored by the U.S. government. I'm talking drone strikes and the like. And yet our, our outrage is very selective. And I, I'm, I'm trying to be careful in pointing this out. It's because the news media along with the political class, is hyper-focusing on this particular conflict. Whose flag will fly above this soil, either in Crimea or in the, the Donbass or Lugansk or, or, you know, does it matter to us? Where is the national security interest for the U.S.? That's the question people need to be asking. And it doesn't mean that, well, you know, those people is in true Ayn Rand fashion. You're on your own. Sorry, you know, <laughs> but that's the way it is. We can still do a lot through humanitarian means. But this is not just a matter of, well, it's, you know, it's a big bully taking on a little defenseless nation. Look, Ukraine has been backed by the West. In fact, uh, the West is, is who helped throw out a Russian-backed president back in 2014 and install a Western-backed president 
by the way, both of whom were, are, are hopelessly corrupt, both the, the Western-backed one as well as the Russian-backed one, you know, in 2014. And, and it's, they, they've armed, they've trained, you know, the CIA has been training people in, in Ukraine for a long, long time. I'm just asking the question, how does that affect you and me? I mean, how is that making us any or more or less free? Because it seems to me like what it's doing is it's just bringing two nuclear powers to the brink of very open conflict. And I, I fail to see how it was necessary in any way, shape, or form. Doesn't mean that you can't uh, have empathy for and concern for and have the interests of the Ukrainian people in mind. I guess what I'm saying is, as far as the governments are concerned, if we want to get real about it, there are no good guys in this conflict. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I know as everything gets a little more complicated, to put it mildly, out there in the world around us, there's a lot of a uh, lot of pieces that are in motion and a lot of uh, potential problems and current problems that we're already facing. Okay, let's face it. Inflation is raising the cost of, of buying groceries every single time you go to the grocery store. If you're paying attention, you will notice, ooh, the price on that has gone up or the quantity has gone down while the price has remained the same. That's called shrinkflation. Nonetheless, uh, it's and it, it, there there are food shortages. There's potential for developing food shortages. I don't tell you this to scare you. I'm just saying, if there was a time to be prepared to have some resources by which you could stand on your own, if necessary, if going to the store was not an option, lifesavingfood.com could sure get you moving in the right direction. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. See for yourself. I think you'll find that uh, they have a lot to offer. And, uh, yeah, they have uh, they have some very incredible deals. <clears throat> my favorite is the ultimate uh, solar and food storage package, which helps you with everything you need to filter water, to cook your food, to, to have a good basis on which to start. 600 bucks. It's a, it's a terrific way to start, so... Click the link. See if it makes sense to you. Let's uh, let's talk for a moment about uh, why the ruling class seems so determined to impose its version of reality on a world that is, in many cases, refusing to accept that version of reality. Got an article here by the Z-Man. The test of reality. And how you can see it playing out in the Russia-Ukraine narrative. Z-Man says, last week, the current president of Ukraine thanked Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg for his role in helping him win the propaganda war. If you, I don't know if you were aware of this, but Facebook lifted its ban on praising various neo-Nazi Nazi militias in Ukraine, Ukraine. And then it announced it would allow calls for violence against individual Russians. You know, that would be a violation of community standards under most other circumstances. But as the Z-Man points out, in the world of infinitely malleable ethics, this is what Silicon Valley now calls a principled stand. Ukraine supporters are proud of their work on social media, winning the meme war with Russia. But does it square with reality 
I mean, the meme war is basically the narrative that, that's being fed to us right now says, oh, yes, well, the Russians are suffering terrible losses. They've suffered like the equivalent of Vietnam in less than the space of a month. Does it square with reality? Not necessarily. And, and I have to point this out. Saying this does not mean, therefore, you know, the Russians are right and rah, rah, Russia, you know, go motherland. Nope. This is called questioning the narrative and trying to avoid being deceived. Z-Man says, in the real world, the Russian army is slowly turning Ukraine into the world's largest mound of rubble. In the Donbass, they have the Ukrainian army and the tens of thousands of militia members surrounded. So it's not easy to get reliable information about what's happening on the ground. But reliable estimates say 50,000 pro-Ukrainian fighters are now trapped in the Donbass cauldron. Barring a peace deal, they will be systematically vaporized over the next couple of weeks. In the south, the Russian army has created a corridor to the Crimea. Now, this was a primary objective of the invasion. Mariupol, a city in, the, in southeastern Ukraine, lies along the estuary of the Kalmyus and Kalchik rivers near the Sea of Azov. This city has been surrounded and cut off by the Russian army. The Ukrainian army based there has been given the chance to surrender, but the irregulars will be given no quarter. It's a preview of what will happen in the Donbass over the next month. The point here is that despite losing the social media war, the Russians are winning the actual war in Ukraine. And it's been slow going as Russians don't wage television-friendly wars, so there's no cool video to, to prove this to you. Ukraine was slowly being turned into a fortified outpost by Washington. So the Ukrainian army is well-trained, it's well-supplied. Digging them out of those fortifications will not be easy, but the Z-Man says it is inevitable. The Russians will turn Ukraine into rubble if that's what it takes to achieve their objective. And what he's pointing out here, again, it's, this is not about Russia good, Ukraine bad. you got to break out of that false dilemma of, well, it's got to be one or the other. He says what this war has revealed is a clash of realities. On the Washington side, reality is played out on TV, chat shows, office politics, and the Internet. They really think winning in public relations campaigns is what matters. In the reality in which Western leaders live, words count for everything. Facts are just tools used to decorate a clever argument or a novel public relations campaign. From the perspective of the West, the war has been a disaster for Russia. On the other side, the Russians seem to be operating in a different reality. They are focused on securing their border, which means neutralizing Ukraine. They prepared for the economic consequences. They prepared their people, who seem to be overwhelming, supportive of the effort. Yes, they have protesters, but, you know, we, does, does BLM stand for everything, you know, that, uh, that America stands for? Mm, hardly. But they get a lot of coverage, right? They get a lot of, of media wherever they go. Just a little something to keep in mind. Westerners have described Putin as having a medieval mindset, which the Z-Man says may be true, but he's dealing with a people in a reality that still thinks the old way about the world. So Ukraine is now caught in between two realities. The one reality is what Samuel Huntington labeled the orthodox civilization. This is Eurasia. On the other side is what he called the Western civilization. 
According to Huntington, the future will be shaped by the clash of these civilizations, as he outlined in his book, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order. What we're seeing in Ukraine is a collision between these two great tectonic plates that define conflicting realities. Now, of course, the quarter-century crusade against Islam by the global American empire was a similar clash of civilizations. Huntington called that area the Islamic civilization for obvious reasons. It's what's commonly referred to as MENA, which stands for Middle East and North Africa. America tried to impose its reality on the Islamic world, and the result was chaos. Every country in the region, except Israel and Iran, is in worse shape now than when the crusade was launched. Funny how we forget that, right? In many respects, he says, what we're witnessing is the test of two competing cold or post-Cold War theories of the future. One is the Huntington theory. The other is the theory of Francis Fukuyama, who laid out in his book, The End of History and The Last Man. He argued that mankind had reached the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the triumph of Western liberal democracy. There was nothing left to discuss as liberal democracy was the winner of the ideological contest. Well, the Z-Man says by any measure, Fukuyama's theory is proving to be all wrong, while Huntington's theory is looking prophetic. We are now in the midst of a second great civilizational conflict where the reality of the West is crashing onto the reality of another civilization, in this case, Eurasia. The reality of the West, social media campaigns and glib responses at press conferences, is proving no match for artillery and armor, at least not in the part of the world controlled by the Orthodox civilization. In the meantime, on the horizon is the certain collision between what Huntington called the cynic civilization, that being China, and the West. East Asia is a bit more complicated as there are many old rivalries in that region. Huntington diced the region into various subgroups like the Buddhists, Hindus, and the Japanese. Even so, China will make a play to recover what she considers to be her lost province, Taiwan. And as we see in Ukraine, this will be a clash between the reality of the West and the reality of China. But he says, lost in all of this is whether the reality of the global American empire can survive these clashes with alternative realities. Prudence said that the empire should respect the perspective of Russians with regards to these areas along her border. Prudence said that the Muslim world should be left to sort itself. Western liberal democracy was incompatible with Islamic culture. But despite all this, Washington continues to operate in its own reality where words can conquer culture. So what we may be seeing is not only the clash of civilizations, but the great test of the underlying sense of reality that animates Western elites. Can they survive in a world in which they need to impose their reality on the rest of the world, but the rest of the world will not accept it? That's a fair question. Either the West comes to terms with the fact that the rest of the world will continue to operate by its own logic, or it will destroy itself in civilizational wars to impose its reality on the reality of alien civilizations. I know, I'm just going to sit back and let that kind of sink in for a moment. Well, wait a minute, aren't we, aren't we the, the, the last great hope for freedom? Well, I'd like to think that that's what we stand for. I'd like to think that's what we exemplify. But the interventions which have been underway, and there have been dozens of them over the last few decades, seem to indicate that more than anything, uh, you know, U.S. foreign policy has just been about imposing by force that Western version of reality. I mean, you have to ask the people in Libya or in Yemen or Afghanistan or Iraq or Somalia. 
or any of another bunch of places. Hey, how's it going? How's that working out for you? I don't think we would be very satisfied with their answers if we believe that the West is always right because might makes right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just want to give a very quick shout out here to GovernYourCrypto.com. I don't know if you have uh, have kind of caught the hint that I've caught here lately, that it's important to make sure you've got your eggs in more than one basket. And if you have been, if you become crypto curious, curious rather, I would encourage you, click on the link, GovernYourCrypto.com. Take a dive in, explore it, see if it's something that makes sense to you. If it does, great. If not, that's fine too. Just trying to make it easier for my listeners to to have some options at their disposal. Have you noticed how obsessed the ruling class is with protecting our democracy, our democracy, from various threats? And yet, uh, when you consider how hard they're painting people like you and I as enemies to our democracy, you got to wonder, whose democracy is this anyway? Got an article here from T.R. Clancy. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And Clancy says, Democrats have been insisting that our democracy is under attack ever since Trump's upset election back in 2016. According to First Things editor R.R. Reno, in his lengthy commentary in this month's issue, this urgent warning has been underlined and put in bold ever since the January 6, 2021 riot at the Capitol. And the phrasing, our democracy, never varies. Yet the more Reno thinks about it, he says, the more I'm puzzled. It's an odd formulation. Our democracy. Why append the possessive? And he finally concludes, well, the answer is evident. Those responsible for our governing consensus are exasperated by an increasingly indocile and intractable public that will not accept their authority. Reno's commentary addresses a New York Times column by extremism expert Cynthia Miller Idris, published to mark the anniversary of January 6th. She warns readers that the Capitol riot proves the most urgent threat to American safety and security isn't coming from foreign terrorists, but from the country's own citizens. Specifically, she's alarmed by a study showing a majority of those arrested uh, for the January 6th attack were employed. Some of them teachers, chief executives, veterans, doctors, and lawyers. They had an average age of around 40. So in other words, largely average to above average Americans, more or less representative of American middle class. That's what concerns her. This makes the threat especially pernicious in her thoughts because the government's traditional counterterrorism infrastructure is built to focus on fringe extremists and thus wholly unequipped to counter a danger that comes not from the fringe, but from the mainstream. Now, for Reno, these assertions invite bewilderment. On its face, this notion of mainstream threats to democracy perplexes. One presumes that a democratic system reflects mainstream views. Come on, isn't that the first principle of democracy, that the majority rules? Well, you'd think. But as Reno points out, Miller Idris is not one to ponder paradoxes. Whatever democracy means for her, by the way, she never says, it's clearly not the rule of the people. It becomes clear that her idea of democracy is a compliant demos, meaning the people, answerable to a well-funded and dynamic kratos, or ruler class. 
Because Miller Idris views our current misguided mainstream thinking as a societal problem more akin to a public health threat, she urges the U.S. to adopt the ambitious, holistic approach of other nations, far ahead of the United States that have, that have used the, these methods to tamp down mainstream extremism. For instance, in a recent article for Foreign Affairs, she proposes a complex social control apparatus comprising not only security and intelligence services, but ministries of education, labor, health and human services, youth and families, social services, and culture, and the arts. Well, that is ambitious. Oh, it also includes decision-making authority granted to experts in education, social work, and mental health. And the object is to build democratic resilience in the mainstream, by which she means citizens more likely to recognize and resist propaganda, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. Right? Because there could never be a reason to question the thinking or the actions of those who wish to rule us. Now, Clancy says these ideas are chilling, but not not only is she proposing policing Americans' thoughts, but who can forget how already in 2020 government officials were using threats to public health as their excuse for seizing authoritarian control of society in response to the pandemic? And also to justify a see-no-evil approach to BLM and Antifa's months-long orgy of arson, looting, and murder on the pretext of a crusade for racial justice. We have education experts already who think parental rights ended when children were enrolled in public school, authorizing them to indoctrinate grade schoolers with critical race theory and gender ideology in defiance of parents' wishes or without their knowledge. Experts on school boards conspired with the Department of Justice to target outspoken parents as domestic terrorists. Reliably leftist members of the helping professions enthusiastically assist in taking children away from parents who refuse to consent to their child's gender transition treatments or to agree that their daughter is a boy. Now, Miller Idris's proposals appeared just as the Department of Homeland Security released its National Terrorism Advisory Bulletin that, as Kyle Scheidler explains at American Greatness, reiterates the change or the sea change in DHS's mission from tracking actual terror, terror threats inspired by enemy laws, lies rather spread abroad to tracking information spread by domestic threat actors. That would mean American citizens. So the Department of Homeland Security's new bottom line is stopping the flow of MDM, the latest government acronym from which you must be protected. That stands for Miss, Dis, and Mal Information. That last neologism defined by DHS as information which is true, but the government considers harmful anyway. The true but harmful examples include uh, listed include misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19. In effect, malinformation means facts harmful to the regime. Now, Clancy says the conspiracy or the I'm sorry. That was a bad Freudian slip. The consensus among the Ministry of Truth advocates is that the proximate cause for the January 6th Capitol riot was a vast undercurrent of wrong think flooding the Internet. And writers like Miller Idris see the riot as a real-world consequence of Americans clicking their way through an online flood of disinformation, including the widely distributed falsehood that rampant voter fraud had allowed Joe Biden to steal what was rightfully Donald Trump's victory. Now, T.R. Clancy says it's the official position of the Biden administration that January 6th conclusively proves the election outcome or any other talks that sow discord or questioning 
let's try that again, conclusively proves questioning the election outcome or any other talk that sows discord or undermines the public trust in U.S. government institutions, guarantees more right-wing mass casualty attacks. This is their language, by the way, and this is their pretext to justify police state tactics against any political opponent they choose. Now they want what Ben Weingarten describes as a counterterrorism policy linking speech that does not comport with regime orthodoxy to terror and then using that pretext to police thought with an armed ministry of truth operating out of our national security and law enforcement apparatus. Casting critics as terrorists and threatening to sick the most powerful, pervasive, and sophisticated security state in history of the in the history of the world on them is, of course, not about defending democracy or protecting the truth, but intimidating democratic opposition into silence and submission to an official narrative. Now, T.R. Clancy says, "Look, neither the left nor their lapdog media can endure the hoi polloi challenging their official narratives." This is why many so, so why so many of Joe Biden's speeches feature scripted outbursts of faux outrage. He's sick of this stuff, and his patience is wearing thin. But the left has worn the people's patience even thinner by unleashing a hundred official narratives that have virtually everyone been exposed as cynical hoaxes. And so he says they've picked the wrong time to break ground for their dreamed-of ministry of truth. Isn't that something? I, that rings true to me. I, and, you know, I'll, I'll grant maybe I'm just weird. It's, I, I already know. For some people, I'm just way, way out there. But how odd is it that you and I, just by simply questioning the narrative, much less, you know, going out there and putting forth conspiracy theories. And I Look, I get it. There are some people who are just so wrapped up in conspiracy theories, they just, they can't stay away from it. And, and it's, it's sensational. It's, it's uh, titillating at some levels. But if you've seen some of these falsehoods exposed, if you have seen holes in some of the official narratives, why not question them? I mean, is it any wonder that we're seeing, you know, the systems of control being implemented around us that would seek to to establish some kind of a social credit score based on are you uh, sticking to the narrative or not? I was joking around about this yesterday, but I'm also half serious, you know. You know, I, I should probably start posting a disclaimer and a warning you know, before my show, uh, hey, listen, uh, you're about to hear narrative violations, which in the future could cost you dearly in terms of your social credit. Now, see, for some people, that would be cause to, oh, that's terrible. I see that as a plus. In fact, <laughs> maybe that's why you choose to listen to this program, because you think, finally, a challenge to the narrative. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you were looking for the place where we regularly engage in wrong think, where we in fact revel in it. See, you didn't even need a secret knock to get in here. Yep, this is the place. And it's not some place where you can just sit back and I, okay, I'm going to give you all your talking points and this is what you have to think. 
I'm doing something far more insidious, at least in the minds of people who are longing to control your thinking, and that is I'm encouraging you to think deeply, clearly, and independently. In other words, to question everything, including what I'm saying. I'm okay if you disagree with me. And any any sources that you encounter that say, well, I'm not okay if you disagree with me, you ought to view those with, with a pretty deep degree of suspicion. But then again, I'm not out to control your life. I'm not out to try to assume control of you. I want you to be as free and happy and prosperous as you can be. But at some level, that means you've got to step outside of the, the official narrative and make up your own mind. What does it all mean? So to that end, I spend my days valiantly searching high and low on the Internet to find the very best information sources, the most principled and credible sources that I can. And it doesn't mean that everything I share with you is therefore written in stone and is right, and you better believe it. But I just want you to understand, I'm doing my homework on a daily basis to try to make sense of it, and then passing on what I hope is the most useful information to give you an idea of what's happening, as well as understanding that you're not helpless. I've got some great sponsors who make it possible for me to do this. They include HSLAmmo.com, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. You know, it's it's hard to, to describe what an interesting time we live in, but I think it can, it can be summarized. And um, you probably noticed that uh, that there are there's a great deal of effort being put forward to take control of free speech, or at least to make sure that you're very aware you can't say that anymore, you can't think that anymore anymore rather because you are you know forbidden from using these words or considering these thoughts. Look away, look away, citizen. There's nothing to see here. So if you are serious about staying connected to reality, you better believe that the people who are trying to um, entrap you in whatever their version of reality is, the one in which, you know, oh gosh, I hate to use this as an example, the one in which, you know, the uh, the transgender uh, male or the transgender swimming champion who is now breaking all these records in, in female swimming, you know, and uh, <laughs> you got to believe that even though that individual still sports the same tackle that a biological male would have been born with, you know, but that's really a woman, much to the chagrin of that individual's teammates. This is what I'm talking about. If, you gotta, if you're going to stay connected with reality, you're going to have to assert yourself. You can't just uh, go along, not, okay, all right, but there's a lot of intimidation factor. And I've got an article here from Kate McCall. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org titled, We Need to Speak Hard Words, or We Need Hard Words, rather, to Speak About Hard Realities. Now, she says, The radio news hour plays in my car, a calm, dispassionate voice, more background noise than anything, and it suddenly registers that a segment on Senate Bill 8, that's regarding the Texas abortion law, now known as the Texas Heartbeat Act, has started. Now, she says, My young children are in the back seat, so I turn the radio off before they become aware of the adult topic. And she says, it hits me, not for the first time, that there will come a day when I will have to explain to them what abortion is. She says, I'm significantly more afraid of that conversation than the sex talk. For all the sensitivity of the topic, sex is natural and good, abortion is anything but. 
And she says, I don't want to be the one who breaks their innocence by revealing to them the depth of human depravity that's possible. But I would hate even more for that information to come from someone else who perhaps with good intentions would try to soften reality. Her point is that words matter. The abortion fight, like so many others, is a fight about language. And it's easy to become desensitized to shock-worthy issues when we're repeatedly exposed to them by means of language. Every time the professional, unemotional voice on the radio brings up abortion rights, in a matter-of-fact, everyday sort of way, it puts a sheen on the issue. As if it's really something that's up for debate. As if it's normal to speak of these grave matters without weeping. And then there's the words themselves. Pleasant euphemisms invented for an incomprehensible act. Words have meaning. And while we tend to think of them as the expression of thought, they also form thought and therefore action. That's why we can talk ourselves in or out of things. The intense horror and disgust that might push us to fight an evil can quickly subside into a merely mild distaste in the face of neutralizing language. The gut-wrenching pain of a brutal infanticide can be abstracted into legal concepts, proposed bills, and clinical jargon such as vacuum aspiration. It's in such a way that words can still lie in their evocation even if we understand what they signify. And it's not the first time in history that distancing, dehumanizing language has been used to justify genocide. See, the Nazis didn't refer to the killing of Jews and other undesirables as mass murder. They called it extermination and ethnic cleansing. In the Rwandan genocide of the 1990s, the Hutus used strongly religious language, such as the Hutu Ten Commandments, to inspire hatred of the Tutsi and dehumanizing terms for them, such as devils and cockroaches, to further justify the slaughter. The harming of others usually requires seeing them as objects rather than as fellow human beings. Emma Jones wrote in her 2011 paper, Rhetorical Weapons, The Social and Psychological Influences of Language and Labeling in Instances of Genocide. There has to be a means of distancing oneself from one's victims in order to carry out violent aggression. And the use of language is often a part of that process, whether applied to abortion or other historical genocides. Now, Kate McCall says, Now that lawsuits are likely propelling the Heartbeat Act and the question of its legality to the Supreme Court, there Roe v. Wade may possibly be overturned. But even if this happens, it's essential to remember that legal loopholes aren't enough. Our society will not fully eradicate abortion unless we openly acknowledge the humanity of the unborn child. Either the womb carries a baby and therefore a person entitled by the Constitution to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or a mere fetus, something not quite human and therefore without rights. But her point is it always comes back to language. She says, when I have the abortion talk with my children, I won't lie to them. I won't sugarcoat the facts as much as I'd like to, because to do so would be a disservice both to them and to the millions of children who have been casualties of a woman's right to choose. I will use the right words, baby, not fetus, kill, not terminate, anti-child, not pro-choice, murderer, not abortionist. Now, why would I use such harsh language with mere children, she asks? Because she says it's our only hope. Only when we fully acknowledge, not only internally but externally in our words, what we have done as a society can we ever hope to repent and repair it. You know, Joseph Sobran, may he rest in peace, I think he passed away back in 2010, was, was one of those individuals with that rare ability to really cut through 
the fluff and get to the heart of the matter. And he said some things very similar to what Kate McCall has said here in, in her essay. He says, if, if abortion really is, you know, such a, such a neutral or, or a morally uh, either explainable or ambiguous thing, why do we have to couch it in euphemistic language? Why would you refer to a, a, a baby in the womb as a product of conception? In fact, for that matter, he says, why do we, why do we try to soften the language? We terminate the pregnancy. He says, you know, if, if you're buying, for instance, uh, um, insecticide, you've got cockroaches, you're trying to get rid of a problem, a, a pest that you don't want. Well, he says, you know, the, the brand names, they, they boast about raid, kills bugs dead. Because that's, that's the benefit of what you're getting. It's not, you know, terminating your bug problem. It's, it's killing them dead. So when you see people starting to use euphemistic language, you know, that's, that's probably a good idea to, to put the red flag up and say, okay, what exactly are they trying to either hide or, or cover that, that they don't want me to look at too closely? Using the term reproductive rights. I mean, that sounds a whole lot better than, than focusing, because it's focusing on the rights of the woman, right? Well, her reproductive rights have got to be observed. Okay, but uh, is, there, is, there, is there any other life that is involved here? Because if there is an innocent life at stake, you would think that would have to figure into the equation as well. But nope. There is no such thing as an innocent life at stake, at least under the current rubric. No, only the reproductive rights of the woman. I have to wonder sometimes, how did we get to this point to where, as a society, we can we can mentally distance ourselves from the consequences of what's actually happening simply by using that kind of euphemistic language? I don't have a good answer, but it's, it's disturbing, and it says some things about us that are not really pleasant. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Take a moment and go visit my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I think you will find a lot of very useful links if you are interested in uh, bettering your understanding of the world around you. You're also going to find some great uh, sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, I've thoughtfully included a link to Heather's email, so if you want to contact her, let's just say that you're one of the thousands of people making your move to the Intermountain West, and, hey, you're fortunate enough to land in the great state of Utah. Well, Heather's the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence in purchasing the home of your dreams. From VA loans to to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the decades of experience, the stability, and the clout to get you the loan you need without delay. So click on the email link that I provide for you. You can call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, go to 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I know that... uh, there, it sometimes seems like there's not a lot that we can do about all the current global drama and the even the even the domestic drama that's going on here. But we're far from helpless to improve the situation wherever you happen to be standing. And and I know that that's that's a tough 
call for a lot of people. I, I have, I've told you about uh, Andy Frizzella. A friend referred me to his, uh, his podcast. And, man, I'll tell you, if you're averse to bad language, um, this is one you probably will want to skip. But if you can, if you can see past the language, if you can let those f bombs drop, you know, bounce off you, the guy makes a whole lot of sense. And one of the things about his message that just absolutely resonates with me is, he says, "Be the best person that you can be. Become such an undeniably good person that even your worst enemies have no choice but to concede that yeah, he's he's a solid individual or she is a solid person." And it's funny because as much as he swears, Andy says, I really hate the F word. I, I do. He goes, I don't, I don't like to see people wearing it on shirts in, in public and whatnot. He goes, I, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. And I, I admire him for that because it's, it's you know, profanity is a bad habit. It's a very difficult habit to break. But I love the idea that the solution starts with us improving ourselves, doing the hard things that have to be done that make it clear that you're a person committed to bettering yourself in every way consistently. And here's one of the things you can do that will really help improve the situation. Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org says, why not teach your kids how to read so that they'll learn how to think? This is an article she wrote about how a decline in reading skills makes geese for the plucking. She says, a teacher friend of mine recently expressed sadness over the stagnation of her students. Before the pandemic, she could see students steadily gaining ground. Now she was seeing zero progress on their tests and maybe even some declines. Now, tests aren't everything, she admitted, yet after struggling through online teaching and masks and other troubles, she was disheartened to see ground being lost. Now, Annie Holmquist says, Unfortunately, it appears my friend is just one of many teachers experiencing such discouragement. The effects of the pandemic are beginning to show up, and the results aren't pretty particularly in the area of reading for younger students. The New York Times reports if children do not become competent readers by the end of elementary school, the risks are pretty dramatic. That's according to uh, Tiffany, Dr. Tiffany Hogan, director of a speech and language literacy lab in Boston. Tiffany Hogan says more poor readers rather are more likely to drop out of high school, earn less money as adults, and become involved in the criminal justice system. Now, Annie Holmquist says this is undoubtedly true, but Hogan overlooks one of the biggest dangers facing this up-and-coming population that can't read. And that is, they will be all the more easily taken in by propaganda, sucked onto the conveyor belt of yes-men that do anything the media and government tell them to do. Former public school teacher John Taylor Gatto tells us why this is so in his book, An Underground History of American Education. Close reading of tough-minded writing is still the best, the cheapest, and quickest method known for learning to think for yourself, he wrote. Students who only learn to read at a superficial level will struggle with ever doing such close reading, however. In turn, they'll lose the opportunity to expand the mind and make important mental connections. But a student who can read and digest a certain text will be able to use knowledge gleaned to engage others in society. Gatto wrote, reading and rigorous discussion of that reading in a way that obliges you to formulate a position and support it against objections is an operational definition of education in its most fundamental, civilized sense. In other words, the serious reader should be able to use the material he has digested to connect the mental dots 
enabling him to stand strong on a position without yielding to the sway of the crowd. Gatto wrote in do, that in doing such, reading, analysis, and discussion that we're able to develop reliable judgment, the principal way we come to penetrate covert movements behind the facade of public appearances. So put differently, what he's saying here is capable readers are able to cut through the 24-7 propaganda that surrounds us, and they're better equipped to discern what is true and what is not. Or as Gatto put it, without the ability to read and argue, we're just geese to be plucked. Now, Annie Holmquist says that is a painful wake-up call, but it's one that every parent should heed. She says, teaching your child to be a strong reader is not just the domain of a school teacher. Parents can teach a child to read as well. In fact, it's in the home that a love of reading is established, as she recently observed by way of a friend. In fact, he realized that his young daughter wasn't talking as much as her siblings had done at the same age. But when he sat her down and began reading regularly to her, her verbal communication soared. So the more parents read to children, the more thinking citizens will have one day. And the more thinking citizens we have, well, the fewer geese there will be for the plucking. Now, if you're tempted to dismiss this, if you think, well, that's all fine and dandy in your little world there, Brian and Annie, you you guys, you know, you're just sitting there, you know, theoretically, uh, it, uh, it may sound good, but uh, does it really work out in the real world? I'm going to assure you, it, it does work out in the real world. And even if it seems too simple to make a difference... It makes a measurable difference. How do I know this? Because that's, this, is, this has been my experience. Of all the things that my mom has done for me, the one thing for which I will be eternally grateful is she taught me to love books. She taught me to read. And I was reading on my own. I'm, I'm sorry, this is going to sound like a flex. Look at those muscles. No, I, I was reading before I ever went into kindergarten. And it was because my mom would sit and read to me, and then she taught me how to read. And um, by the time I was, you know, four years old, I could read simple books by myself. And it was kind of a standing joke in our family. You know, if, if it was quieter, where did Brian go? They knew where to find me. More often than not, I was, you know, I was set up there on the heat vent behind my dad's easy chair reading something. And I really liked especially the... Uh, outdoor life and sports of field magazines that my grandpa would would give to me on a regular basis but i liked you know other books and and it started a lifelong <clears throat> love of reading for me that uh, that has in turn you know blossomed into a love of writing a love of speaking a love of communicating and i love to i love to examine ideas but it didn't all distill on me, you know, at once. It's not like, you know, yep, it's a one and done thing. You learn to read, man, you are set. And if this, here's, here's a real flex for you. I still have to push myself to this day. I still have to, to push myself to engage things with my mind that are above my head. And it's hard. And I say that as somebody who's been, you know, reading for a very, very long time and, 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 and enjoys it. But I'm going to suggest that it's absolutely worth it. And it's one of the best things that you can do, even if it starts just by showing by example to the young people in your lives, the kids in your lives. 
Don't be surprised if you uh, sit, if they see you reading on a regular basis. Don't be surprised if you see them picking up a book, even if they themselves can't read it. But they know for some reason it matters. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by Sewing and Quilting Center. This is where the finest people involved in sewing, quilting, embroidery, and do I dare say it, the sewing arts. This is where they gather and this is where they get their their machines, their supplies, their training. Or for that matter, get their machines fixed if they ever need fixed. It's a wonderful business, family-owned since it was started back in 1984. It's now under its third ownership, but the original owner still is, is very much a part of that business and, and helps with the repair of the various machines. This is where people can really get their feet on the ground when it comes to sewing and quilting. And if you haven't seen some of the latest machines that are available to help you in those endeavors, it's very eye-opening. We have come a long way from the old needle and thread, you know, got to sew a button on, darn some socks and so forth. You can create some truly remarkable things. Click on the link that I provide in my show notes. It's SewingQuiltingCenter.com. See for yourself, and better still, if you're in St. George, Utah, stop in and see them at their store. So U.S. foreign policy is kind of a hot-button topic, and and this is going to cause some discomfort, so I'm just going to give you this uh, disclaimer up front here. It turns out that uh, U.S. foreign policy can be a pretty effective red pill. For a lot of us. I know it was for me. This was, I really got red-pilled back in 2002 during the run-up to the Iraq war. Because I could see a disconnect between what was right and what my government was doing. And as Caitlin Johnstone explains, international law becomes a meaningless concept when it is only applied to U.S. enemies. She gives a quote from Australian whistleblower David McBride. I think I shared this one with you in part yesterday. This was a statement he made on Twitter. David McBride said, I've been asked if I think the invasion of Ukraine is illegal. And he says, my answer is, if we don't hold our own leaders to account, we can't hold other leaders to account. If the law is not applied consistently, it is not the law. It is simply an excuse we use to target our enemies. We will pay a heavy price for our hubris of 2003 in the future. We didn't just fail to punish Blair and Bush. We rewarded them. We reelected them. We knighted them. So if you want to see Putin in his true light, imagine him landing a jet and then saying, mission accomplished. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says, as far as I can tell, this point is logically unassailable. International law is a meaningless concept when it only applies to the people the U.S. Power Alliance doesn't like. And that point is driven home by the life of McBride himself, whose own government responded to his publicizing suppressed information about war crimes committed by Australian forces in Afghanistan by charging him as a criminal. Now, neither George W. Bush or Tony Blair are in prison cells at The Hague, where international law says they ought to be. Bush is still painting away from the comfort of his home, issuing proclamations comparing Putin to Hitler and platforming arguments for more interventionism in Ukraine. Blair is still merrily warmongering his charred little heart out, saying NATO should not rule out directly attacking Russian forces in what amounts to a call for thermonuclear world war. They are as free as birds, still singing their old demonic songs from the rooftops. 
Now, she says, when you point out this obvious plot hole in discussions about the legality of Vladimir Putin's invasion, you'll often get accused of whataboutism, which is a noise that empire loyalists like to make when you've just highlighted a highlighted damning evidence that their government's behaviors entirely invalidate their position on an issue. This is not a whataboutism. It's a direct accusation that's completely devastating to the argument being made because there really is no counter-argument. The Iraq invasion bypassed the laws and protocols for military action laid out in the founding charter of the United Nations. The current U.S. military occupation of Syria violates international law. As she says, international law only exists to the extent to which the nations of the world are willing and able to enforce it. And because of the U.S. empire's military power, and more importantly, because of its narrative control power, this means international law is only ever enforced with the approval of that empire. This is why people in, the people indicted and detained by the International Criminal Court are always from weaker nations, overwhelmingly African, while the USA can get away with actually sanctioning ICC personnel if they so much as talk about investigating American war crimes and suffer no consequences for it whatsoever. It's also why Noam Chomsky famously said that if the Nuremberg Laws had continued to be applied with fairness and consistency, then every post-World War II U.S. president would have been hanged. This is also why former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton once said that the U.S. war machine is dealing in the anarchic environment internationally where different rules apply, which does require actions that in a normal business environment in the United States we would find unprofessional. Well, Caitlin Johnson says Bolton would certainly know in his bloodthirsty push to manufacture consent for the Iraq invasion, he spearheaded the removal of the Director General of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons a crucial institution for the enforcement of international law using measures which included threatening the director general's children. Now, the OPCW is now subject to the dictates of the U.S. government, as evidenced by the organization's cover-up of a 2018 false flag incident in Syria, which resulted in airstrikes by the U.S., U.K., and France during Bolton's tenure as senior Trump advisor. She says the U.S. continually works to subvert international law enforcement institutions to advance its own interests. When the U.S. was seeking U.N. authorization for the Gulf War in 1991, Yemen dared to vote against it, after which a member of the U.S. delegation told Yemen's ambassador, that's the most expensive vote you ever cast. Yemen lost not just $70 million in U.S. foreign aid, but also a valuable labor contract with Saudi Arabia, and a million Yemeni immigrants were sent home by American Gulf state allies. She says simple observation of who is subject to international law enforcement and who is not makes it clear that the very concept of international law is functionally nothing more than a narrative construct that's used to bludgeon and undermine governments who disobey the U.S. centralized empire. That's why in the lead-up to this confrontation with Russia, we saw a push among empire managers to swap out the term international law with the term rules-based international order, which can mean anything and is entirely up to the interpretation of the world's dominant power structure. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says it's entirely possible we may see Putin ousted and brought before a war crimes tribunal one day, but that won't make it valid. You can argue with logical consistency that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is wrong and will have disastrous consequences far beyond the bloodshed it has already inflicted. 
But what you can't do with any logical consistency whatsoever is claim that it's illegal. Because there is no authentically enforced framework for such a concept to apply. As U.S. law professor Dale Carpenter has said, if citizens can't trust the laws that will be trust that laws will be enforced in an even-handed and honest fashion, they cannot be said to live under the rule of law. Instead, they live under the rule of men corrupted by the law. And this is all the more true of laws which would exist between nations. So you don't get to make international law meaningless and then claim that an invasion is illegal. That's not a legitimate thing to do. And as long as we're living in a Wild West environment created by a murderous globe-spanning empire which benefits from it, claims about the legality of foreign invasions are just empty sounds. Now, I get it. That's, that's making some people feel like, hey, that's not a very patriotic thing to say. But are you more concerned are you more concerned with, you know, hey, my country, right or wrong? Or are you more concerned with what is right and what is wrong? And I want my country to be in the right. Because might alone isn't a good enough uh, measurement as to whether or not your country is right. I've got a link to her article. She's got a ton of links within that will back up what she's talking about here. You know, and, and I, I want to apologize for the discomfort that it's causing, but at the same time, I have to acknowledge that discomfort is part of being red-pilled. It's part of waking up and recognizing that, whew, what I believed, what I thought was the way things are, has been incomplete. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean that you're evil. It doesn't mean that, you know, somehow you're deficient and you should hang your head in shame. If anything, it points to the power of those narrative controls that are all around us, as well as the peer pressure that we feel from the people around us who likewise have that that understanding that's, you know, a mile wide but only a millimeter deep. If you want to deepen your understanding, you've got to be willing to pay the price to, to look at it from different angles, from different vantage points. Again, I don't claim to have the answers here. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't think I could conclusively, you know, give you, you know, the quick down and dirty, here's what it all means. But I'm doing my best to ask the right questions that will give us a better, more fleshed out view of what's actually taking place. So that from there, we can clearly and independently make up our own minds about what it all means. As you can tell, I feel like this is something that's, that's really important. And I'm willing to risk being unpopular. I'm willing to risk being misunderstood for the sake of encouraging people to ask those questions, to be skeptical, and to make up your own mind rather than be given talking points to regurgitate. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. I am a fan of the shooting sports. There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of enjoyment in it. And ammo is a big part of that. And you'll be happy to know that you've got a great ammo manufacturer 
right there in your hometown if you live in St. George, Utah, because that's where HSL Ammo is located. Spencer Worthington is truly one of the best people that I know, and it would mean a lot to me that if for your ammo needs, you would go to him and say, Spencer, Brian's been talking about you. He says you're a great guy, and you're the place to go for ammo. All right, let's let's uh, let's talk about making sense of the conflict with Russia. This can be very difficult right now because there is a, an amazing amount of official propaganda, and I mean that from all different sides, that is driving public perception. So Doug Casey actually has some very solid analysis and some thoughts on where this all is headed, and I'm just going to have to hit a few excerpts. It's a fairly lengthy article. I'll link to it in the show notes. But this was, uh, this was published on lewrockwell.com. And it's an interview with international man who asks Doug, Prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we discussed the rising tensions between the U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. What's your take on what's happened since then? And Doug says, well, first, I think it makes sense to recount the genesis of this war. It started when an American-backed coup overthrew the Ukrainian government in 2014. A U.S.-backed thug replaced a Russian-backed thug. Nothing unusual, except that Ukraine shares a long border with Russia. The Russians viewed that much as Americans would if Russians had put a puppet government in Ottawa. Next, the two Russian-majority provinces in Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, seceded from Ukraine. Now, secession is usually the best way of solving a political problem between groups with radically differing religions, ethnicities, cultures, or or what have you. It's much better than staying united with one group dominating the other. The Russians simultaneously took back Crimea, which Nikita Khrushchev had arbitrarily transferred to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic from the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic back in 1954. Now, of course, these two new breakaway republics were not recognized by the West. They're similar to to, uh, Transnistria, South Ossetia, also Azbakazia, and Nagorno-Karabakh. Man, these are not easy names, by the way. Or, for that matter, Northern Cyprus or Taiwan. There are plenty of other regions in the world. Everyone seems to have forgotten Kurdistan, for instance, anxious to do the same. And he says, take, for example, Kosovo, a breakaway province of Serbia. The Donbass versus Ukraine situation is exactly analogous to that of Kosovo versus Serbia, roughly 1990 in the following years. Now remember, the U.S. and NATO countries supported that secession with an active bombing campaign, killing something like 15,000 people. The secession of Kosovo, supported by the U.S., is viewed as good, but that of Donbass, supported by Russia, is supposed to be bad. And he says, just so there's no confusion, I support both secessions. But the U.S. has minted a new foreign enemy, once again proving how right Randolph Bourne was when he said, war is the health of the state. Now the hoi polloi are hooting and panting like chimpanzees, pouring vodka with Russian-sounding names like Smirnov and Stoli down the drain, even though they don't come from Russia, and refusing to put Russian dressing on their salads. The same fools were rechristening French fries as freedom fries when France declined to denounce Iraq as the enemy du jour. Putin has now been officially designated a madman like Gaddafi, Saddam, and Assad before him. And once someone is designated as the new Hitler, Washington can do anything. Now listen closely to what he says next. Putin committed a criminal act by invading Ukraine, and he's no friend of personal liberty either, but... Was it any different than what the U.S. did when it bombed Serbia in 1999 or invaded Panama in 1989? 
or Grenada in 1983, or Afghanistan, or Iraq. Of course, Putin's a dangerous sociopath, sociopath, but he says, show me a major world leader who's not. That doesn't mean he's much more insane than any of our recent presidents. Morality aside, Putin made a strategic error to invade Ukraine regardless of how much the Russians were provoked, but it should be viewed as just another border war in a region that's had nothing but border wars for the last thousand years. It's absolutely none of our business. If the borders realign due to this Russian incursion, it's really nothing new. And as a matter of fact, Putin has said the war will come to an immediate end if the Ukrainians cede Crimea to Russia, recognize the two breakaway provinces, and remain neutral. And he says these are certainly, in the context of history, entirely reasonable requests. But again, the U.S. provoked all this with the coup that they fomented rather in 2014 and their attempts to get Ukraine into NATO. But that's all history at this point. The world's political and economic structure is being reset. Now, there's a couple of things that this brings up, though. And that is, okay, so the U.S. and its European allies are waging economic warfare against Russia. They've imposed sanctions, they've confiscated assets of the Russian government and even private citizens and kicked Russian banks out of SWIFT. They've also made moves to target Russia's gold reserves. So Doug Casey has asked, how seriously is this impacting Russia? Will they capitulate? And his answer is, in some ways, it's actually helping Russia because their major exports are commodities. Oil has doubled, as has wheat. Nickel has about quadrupled, as has European natural gas. Palladium is at an all-time high. Russia exports only commodities, and the West's response and embargoes have doubled their prices. Russia will make more money than ever before. Now, he says there are a lot of channels for exporting their commodities, albeit with costs. The sanctions will be inconvenient for for Russians in many ways. No more Apple iPhones or Intel chips. So they'll just buy Chinese Lenovo's and Huawei's. The Russians can get everything they need and want from China and other non-Western countries. So they really won't be denied that much. It'll just be inconvenient. The international black market works extremely well. In the meantime, Starbucks, McDonald's, Pizza Hut, KFC, Facebook, and scores or hundreds of Western corporations are shooting themselves in the foot by closing down their outlets in Russia. In fact, he says the net result will probably be an improvement in the general health of the Russian population. Sure, the sanctions will hurt Russia, trade war hurts everybody, but sanctions will be about as successful as the embargo against Cuba that started 60 years ago. It's very much as if you don't like the guy who lives next door, so you burn down your house because you think it'll reduce the market value of his house. Now, here's the really interesting part, though. In response to this economic warfare, Russia has implemented alternatives to the U.S.-dominated financial system. What does this mean for the power of the U.S. dollar and U.S. dominance in the world? Okay, this is where you and I need to be paying attention, right? Because this is where we are going to be feeling some pain shortly. Doug Casey says, once again, the American government is shooting America in the foot. Now, it may come as a shock to hear this, but the greatest danger America faces isn't Moscow. It's Washington. For decades, the major U.S. export hasn't been IBMs, Boeings, or wheat. It's been dollars. We now run a trade deficit of about a trillion dollars a year, shipping fiat dollars to nice foreigners in trade for Mercedes, Sonys, and cocaine. Now, there's probably something like 20 trillion U.S. dollars outside the U.S., but dollars will soon become hot potatoes now that they're manifestly losing value at 20% a year. But he says it's worse than that. 
electronic dollars have to be traded through New York. People who have seen what's happened to places like Iraq, Syria, Libya, and now Russia when they're designated as enemy nations. The point being, at some point, dollars will be dumped wholesale. And stupidly using the dollar as a weapon, the U.S. government is greatly speeding up America's destruction. For example, just last week, the Nigerian government cut a deal with the Chinese government to accept yuan for oil. The U.S. dollar has been cut out of the loop. So why should anyone use the fiat currency of a government that's not only an adversary but bankrupt? He says, I don't doubt that the Chinese, in cooperation with the Russians, will put together an anti-SWIFT system. Soon, billions of people will carry a Chinese credit card in addition to their Visa and American Express. Now, that's something to think about. By the way, he also talks about uh, the money and banking system and how uh, one of the extremely dangerous megatrends right now is the rise of central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. He says the U.S. will certainly try to turn the dollar into a completely digital currency, eliminating paper money and giving everyone an account with the Fed, and it'll be sold as a benefit, something convenient, something patriotic. Now, he says the, the only practical defense for the average guy is to accumulate gold and silver in his personal possession, and the price of those two metals is going way up. And that's because the only financial asset that's not simultaneously someone else's liability is gold. But he says, that unfortunately, the average American neither understands gold nor has any. Now, there's a lot more to this commentary by Doug Casey, but I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You can check it out for yourself. I'll tell you, the, <clears throat> the decoupling of the dollar from oil, in other words, petrodollars going the way of the dinosaur, so to speak, this is something that deserves much, much closer observation. And it's going to require some stout hearts. Yeah, tough times may be ahead, but uh, stay firm. Know who you are. Know what you stand for. This is The Brian Hyde Show.